You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, episode 169. It is July, which means it's snake month. And this episode, accordingly, we are discussing sea snakes. That is very fitting. We have left croc month behind, and last episode we did marine crocs, and it is all too fitting that we do sea snakes. So we're going to go into the evolution of sea snakes, the many versions of marine adapted snakes there are today and have been over the evolutionary history of snakes moving into the sea is a thing that snakes have done a surprising number of times yeah more sea snakes than one might expect lots of ancient (laughs) sea snakes lots of modern sea snakes it's going to be tons of fun we'll talk about how they do it what are the ways that they've done it and what are the evidences we have of sea snakes in the past And then our blog post will be full of cool pictures and links as usual. This episode topic, in addition to being snake-themed for Snake Month, was also requested. We received a number of requests for sea snakes specifically, or more snakes in general, from Joel, Ligus, Big Boss Man, Yayaoi Neko, Matthew, Jonathan, Anna, and Brachiosnorus. Nice. Thank you, everybody. For those wonderful requests, we hope you enjoy. (laughs) Before we get into the meat of the episode, we have some announcements. First and foremost, as usual, we have a Patreon. We do. The Common Descent Patreon includes several tiers at which people can sign up to financially support the podcast. Also, moral and emotional support, which we (laughs) greatly appreciate. (laughs) The support from Patreon allows us to do all of the things we do with the podcast, and in return... Our patrons get access to director's notes, bonus audio, live streams, all sorts of cool stuff like that, including, at certain levels, your name shouted out on the podcast. Uh, We have gotten a whole bunch of new people joining during this, our big summer extravaganza. So this episode, we would like to welcome new patrons, Jamie, Kathan, Adrian, Lalitha, Bartolaire, NYB, Mauricio, Daniel, And bugs all the way down. Wow. Thank you all so very much for supporting us on Patreon. If you, dear listener, are interested in doing the same, please find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. Yes, thank you so much. That's that's amazing. (laughs) Also, as mentioned, it is Snake Month. Mm -hmm. June is Croc Month, July is Snake Month, and that means that for the month of July, we are celebrating in much the same way. We've got this themed episode also on july 16th we will be releasing our snake month bonus episode an interview with me about snakes and snake related stuff (laughs) we also have our exclusive snake stuff channel open on the discord only for the month of july so go ahead and hop in there and join in the snake related discussion and of course very importantly we have a summer exclusive tier on our patreon it was the crocs and snakes tier in june now it is the snakes and crocs tier but it all the rest remains the same subscriptions that we receive at this level during this month will contribute 
to charitable donations we will be making at the end of the summer towards snake and croc research and conservation. If you would like to support the podcast, now is a great time to do it because if you join that tier this month, you will also be supporting us supporting research and and conservation for our favorite reptiles. Thank you. Huge thanks to all the people who have signed up at these tiers already and a huge thanks proactively to all the people who will be signing up later in the month. Yes, thank you so much. And here's another thing. Not only is July Snake Month, but as our friend Bo reminded us not too long ago, July here in the U.S. is also Disability Pride Month. Yeah. So happy Disability Pride Month, everybody out there. Absolutely. We will put a link in the episode description uh, for a place where you can learn more about why it's Disability Pride Month and what that means and what sort of things people are doing. So this is a shout out to all of our friends and followers who are in the disability community, wherever you are, whatever you do, happy Snake and Disability Pride Month. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, a couple other things outside of our podcast. We uh, have been showing up on other podcasts. Yeah. I was recently invited to be a guest on the Snake Talk podcast, which is a podcast uh, put out by the Orient Society, where I talked about snake paleontology. Released just in time for Snake Month. Perfect. Very fitting. Link in the episode description. And also, Will and I both appeared on the podcast Little Curiosities with Kendall Long, where we talked about the evolution of flight and things that have flown over time. Yeah. And we had a whole lot of fun. That episode comes out officially on July 4th. It is not out as of this recording where we're sitting here now, but by the time you're hearing this, it will also be out There is also a link in the episode description. Huge thanks to Chris from Snake Talk and Kendall from Little Curiosities for inviting us on for fun discussions. Yeah, no, it was that that discussion with Fight was a lot of fun. Yeah. So between our guest appearances on other podcasts and our bonus content going on during this month for Snake Month, July is a great time for people who like the sound of our voices. Yeah. So enjoy it. (laughs) Enjoy it while it lasts. And with the announcements out of the way, we can move on to the news. Every episode, we pick some news, some new research, some news stories from paleontology, evolutionary studies, related sciences. Keeps us all up to date. No points for guessing what my news is about, but I'll (laughs) let Will go first. My first bit of news is about a new dinosaur with unusual hands. Okay. Or at least notable hands. Jazz hands. Yeah. Yeah. This research is by Shuri Wong et al. in Cretaceous Research, and the article we'll be linking to is by Bob Yurka in Fizz.org, so press release. And those will be linked in the blog post. This is the identification of a new small theropod. So those are your typically two-legged, typically predatory dinosaurs. This new species has been named Migmanikion Layang. This is from uh, Inner Mongolia in China from a formation called Pigeon Hill Locality. Uh, It's a lower Cretaceous, so about 121 million years old, and was a freshwater deposit. This specimen was completely embedded in a slab of rock, so they were only able to view one side. Okay. Which we've talked about, that happens quite frequently, and you're not always able to get the fossil out right away or confidently without damaging it. But it did reveal enough for them to still be able to identify a new species... The interesting part is how they identified it, because all that was preserved, or all that they were able to see, was some ribs, part of a forearm, and one complete hand. 
Okay, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. And not the parts you typically think of as being like the identifying thing, like the skull. Right. The hand is what held the features that identified it as something new. Huh. Not because it had anything utterly crazy about it, but it had a hand unlike any other dinosaur they'd yet seen. Enough mixture of features that it didn't fit with any other theropods. Interesting. So it got a new species name. They said they can confidently refer it to Maniraptorin. So this is the group that includes birds and close cousins, but not bird dinosaurs. Right. Velociraptor, Deinonychus, and a whole bunch of other things. Yep, yep, yep. A lot of your famous theropod dinosaurs are in there. Especially the feathery ones. Mm-hmm. This is based on the most derived aspects of the hand. So the more later, the features that we see show up later in this group are present. Some of those are present in this hand, which groups it with them. Uh, they noted one of the things that is unique with their hands is a moon-shaped wrist bone, which is what eventually gives birds the ability to fly. Yeah, I think that that bone in Maniraptora is at least part of what allows them to fold the yeah. hand in that mm-hmm. very th- that characteristic way we think of birds doing uh, when they when they fold their wings. It sounded like that might have been one of the features. I couldn't find like a list of the specific features. Yeah, I think that that's what that bone is associated with. Uh, and I think that was that sounded like one of the ones that was showing up in this hand that right, grouped right. it with Maniraptorans. But the mixture of features they see in the hand make it hard to tell which lineage they group most closely with. Some of the features, a lot of them group them near Oviraptorosaurs and Therizinosauroids. Oviraptor is the famous one with the head crest and the shortened beak, famous for being feathery and often like omnivorous and... and Odd raptorish dinosaurs. Therizinosaurs include Therizinosaurus with the big long claws, but also many others that had claws and uh, herbivorous diets and stuff, which does suggest that it's probably not close to any of the lineages near birds. So probably right, your Troodons, your Deinonychus mm-hmm. and Velociraptors, maybe not near those. Groups. It seems to be grouping with the less birdy Maniraptorans. They did note that it is reminiscent of one particular theropod. Fukui Venator Paradoxus, which is a Japanese dinosaur. This is notable because this dinosaur was also noted for being weird among theropods, of having a mixture of primitive, you know, more ancestral and derived, more later evolving traits. And so the fact that it's grouping with this other unusual theropod is something they noted. And when they did phylogenetic analysis to try to group it, it did group out very close with Fukuivenator. Interesting. So this might be another unusual theropod if we get more of the dinosaur. I wonder if they're grouping together because they are similarly unusual because they're related, or if they're both just weird and therefore confusing the analysis. Yes. (laughs) They did know that they got some placements that were among oviraptors, but that, as they put it, these were suboptimal descriptions of the characters of the hand. Okay, so the more precise they are, mm-hmm. the more it groups with that Japanese dinosaur. Yes. Hmm. There is some other fragmentary uh, specimens from the same locality that they've not yet been able to group with being the same type of dinosaur. Okay, so they might not be the same species. Yes. So they can't say for sure that they have more, but there are other partial specimens that could mean we have others of this species, but we haven't confirmed that yet, basically. Every now and then you get a discovery like this that reminds you that in paleontology, sometimes you got to work with what you got. That was why I was interested in this is it's not usual that we get to talk about like 
the specific body part that I need, and also unusual when it's a hand or something. Yeah. Well, and there are certain dinosaurs. It's a, it's this interesting trend with certain groups, like uh, uh, ornithomimosaurs, are fairly commonly described just from feet. Mm-hmm. Not even necessarily because the feet are the best part, just because that's what you end to, you tend to get. Yes, from that group. In this case. You have a hand, and fortunately, the hand has features that maybe help you to identify where this dinosaur falls. What I will be curious to see if we do find more complete specimens is, will the hand continue to be the most identifying and notable thing? Right. Is your hand the weird part of you, but the rest of you is pretty normal? Or will we get to your face and go, whoa, that is also very weird. Forget the hand. Like, we've got all sorts of different features so here. So Kuivenator has, like, weird ears and stuff. Hmm. So, like, will we get to the face of this dinosaur and find out that you're distinct in other ways, or is your hand really what sets you apart yeah. still? Get a CT scanner to that slab of rock. Yeah. Well, my first bit of news is research on modern stuff, but with implications for evolution. Of snakes, snake. It's snake month, and so I've got I've got two snake newses because you only had one croc news, so I I gotta one up you. This is genetic research that is a very broad genetic study on snakes that furthers our understanding of the genetic signals of evolutionary paths in snake evolution. This is research by Changjun Peng et al. in the journal Cell. And we will link in the blog post to an article by Elizabeth Panisi in Science. This study, like I said, major genetic study of snakes. They used DNA sequencing. It sounds like top-of-the-line DNA sequencing techniques to produce whole genome drafts of 14 different species of snakes, which is quite a haul for one paper to put out 14 snake genomes. These species include 12 different families of modern snakes. So it's also a wide sample across the snake family tree. For their analysis, they also compared these new genomes with previously sequenced genomes from 11 other snake species, plus certain other reptiles, a few lizards, and I think at least one turtle and one crocodilian, to get a sense of Let's do a big comparative genome analysis and see what changes have happened genetically over the course of snake evolution. Right off the bat, one of the most important things about this study is that it's going to be a big resource. Yes. Like, they have now contributed a whole bunch more snake genome, a whole bunch more snake genetic data to our growing library of information about these animals. So this is only the first major study to use this new data. For sure, this will be important moving forward with more studies. That's my favorite thing about genome sequencing is that it just, every time you do it, it allows you to do a cool new study, but also adds to the data bank. Yes. That we can now pull from for comparative studies down the line. Now, this study characterizes a whole bunch of interesting genetic features among snakes, There are a handful that are being highlighted in sort of the articles about them, and there are a handful that stood out to me when I skimmed the paper and read over those articles. So I'm just going to mention a a handful of cool things that they noted from this analysis. For one, their study identified several deletions, that is, missing bits of DNA, from a specific gene that is known to be involved in limb development. 
Not too surprising. Not surprising, but we may be, it may be zeroing in on some of the genes that were important in snakes gradually losing their limbs. It was mentioned, this was either in the article or the paper, that when these particular mutations they found were replicated in mouse genes, it led to shorter toes huh. in the developing mice. So this does seem to have some impact on reducing the development of limbs. They also identified another missing gene, so a a deletion, which in other animals is known to be a gene involved in controlling the symmetry of the body during development. Mm. That plus, uh, they said, 13 mutations noticed in genes related to lung development. There we go. Might be some genetic hints as to how snakes evolved their particular lung structure. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, and as I will mention later in the main discussion, snakes today tend to have one functioning lung. Yes. Instead of having two side by side because they are a long tube, one lung is vestigial, the other lung is doing basically all the work. And so they got a big long lung and then like a little bean of a lung. Yes. So they may also have identified some of the genes that might have been, if the, the, the mutations in genes that may have contributed to that unusual development. Well, it's neat that it was stuff in the, the lung genetics and asymmetry mm-hmm. genetic. That makes sense. Yes, because that's asymmetrical. Yes, your, your right and your left are no longer equivalent. You have your preferring one. Yes. Neat. And to mention one other category, they noticed a bunch of interesting genetic shifts related to vision, hmm. which I think we've talked about before in snakes. This study identified several genes that are lost that are related to vision, while certain other vision-related genes are upregulated, which means that they are enhanced, that they're being expressed more intensely than usual. So some vision genes are gone, others are more active or more abundant. And this is an interesting mixture of features in there, and the author suggests one possible explanation is that the loss in vision genes could be related to an origin as burrowers. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something that a lot of genetic studies have supported, that early in their evolution, snakes may have adapted to life underground, contributing to loss of their vision, reduction of vision, which we see in a lot of burrowing animals, which might be why it's very common today for snakes to have reduced genes associated with vision. Yes. But the upregulated vision genes is a little bit of an odd feature, and the authors suggested that that could be that when snakes return to the surface, the remaining vision genes had to be enhanced to make up for their now lacking vision. Yeah, they had to pick up the slack that had been lost. Yeah. Uh, which makes total, like, it's a very similar pattern that people have suggested for mammal evolution with suggesting if we were nocturnal mm-hmm. and lost a lot of our color vision and then came back into the day and had to boost it how we were able to now. Right, with the pieces remaining. To do the best we can with what we have. And speaking of vision, one more thing that was just super cool. They noticed that in vipers, pythons, and boas which are three groups of snakes that all have infrared sensing pits, heat sensing pits, they noticed convergent genetic changes, those similar changes across all three groups, specifically in genes that are associated with other genes 
that are related to cellular responses to heat. Okay. So, once again, identifying certain mutations in the genetics that may be associated with their ability to sense heat, and maybe similar genetic evolution in all three groups contributing to that heat sense. Yeah. So all sorts of interesting little tidbits of genetic information that might help us to identify what particular genetic pathways led snakes to evolve their particular snaky features. Very cool. Man, genome studies are so often so intense. (laughs) Like... Yeah, it's a lot of data. It's a lot. Especially a study like this, uh-huh. where it's a very broad study, phylogenetically speaking. That's very cool. I'll be super excited to see what studies come down the line later with this new new data. Yeah. And if you all out there are interested in what were the species of snakes that they sequenced, I don't have that written down. Follow the link in the blog <laughs> post, and you can find it in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> very neat. Well, my next, next bit of news uh, deals with long necks. And, I mean, they, they do have long bodies, but the necks are the famous parts because this is about Tanistrophius. Aha. Uh, these are Triassic marine reptiles that uh, had very, very long necks, and then the body was fairly lizard-shaped with this extremely disproportionately long neck in front of it. All right. I will go ahead and say that Tanistrophius is close enough to a sea snake <laughs> that I will allow it for this episode. Right? Unfortunately, this news is about evidence that those long necks may have made them prone to predation because it was a big target. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, so they're doing a bad job. See, that's why snakes, <laughs> yeah. uh, you got to lose all those limbs. Yeah, that's, why you're not, you, that's why you don't get invited to the, the club. Can't make it to the club. You're yes, getting yes. picked off on the way. <laughs> this is researched by Stephen Spikeman and... And Udald Majal in Current Biology. And the article is by Jacinta Bowler in Cosmos Magazine. So, extremely long necks. Uh, we've talked about them before because this is a thing that happened with a lot of Mesozoic reptiles, specifically marine reptiles. You know, plesiosaurs famously, but Tanistrophids also have very, very, very long necks. The article did note that their necks are unique among a lot of other long-necked groups and that they had only 13 hyper-elongated vertebrae, so neck bones, Mm. with strut-like ribs to support them. Yeah, so they're more like giraffes. Yes. They made each bone big instead of adding more bones. Yes, exactly. And likely, they had stiffer necks. This study was looking at two specific specimens from Monte San Giorgio in Switzerland. Both had severed necks. Oh. They preserved the skull, and then an incomplete set of neck bones that abruptly terminates at a distinct break. Oh, so in they found the, bones. the severed heads. Yes. Oh. With a broken neck, not like just two vertebrae didn't meet up. There right, is right. a break there. Ooh. This is one of those situations where it's hard to determine exactly what caused this cuz fossils get separated and bodies get pulled apart after death all the time sure, either sure. by decomposition or scavenging or just sediment moving and shifting the bo- the bones around. But upon closer analysis, they did notice bite marks Ooh. at the break site. In one case, right above the break. So there are tooth marks on these neck bones, which gives them a much stronger bit of evidence for it being a predatory action that severed these heads. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which would make it really solid evidence for 
predator-prey interaction with these kinds of shaped animals, which is something that has been thought of before with long-necked marine reptiles. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're such a mystery since we don't have things like them today. How are you behaving? How are you surviving? Also, was that a hindrance? Right. Isn't that just a big old weak spot? Yes. And it seems like maybe. Hmm. Obviously not enough to be stopping natural selection. Right. Because this were... was a successful group. Yeah. But it could be that predators adapted a particular hunting strategy that if you can, go for the neck. Yes, exactly. That like many predators know where to aim on their prey. This may have been the spot to aim on for these animals if you're hunting them. And they noted that the reason we might have the heads is because once they severed it, the skinny neck and small head is not the most nutritious part of the body. So they then just took the meaty part and left the decapitated head. Yeah. The fact that there's two of them is also support for that. It may have been a regular occurrence, not just a one-off. This happened at least twice. Yes. And if we got two fossils of it, it was probably happening more than that, just statistically. They also did note that based on the size of the animal and the force it would take to sever it they do have a list of potential predators it could be (laughs) i could not find the list like i didn't see it in the the abstract or the article they also had one that showed two puncture marks with that were spaced 14 and a half millimeters apart so they have a rough idea of tooth placement of the predator that did it and they said this limits to just three potential predators that it could be so they have even a short list of, of suspected uh, 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 perpetrators for the these decapitations. I would assume, because uh, this is Triassic, mm-hmm. and you've got a bunch of other marine reptiles, early ichthyosaurs, you've got reptiles on land. Also, sharks and big oh, yeah. fish could certainly do it. All members of some sort of Triassic revolution. <laughs> sort of <laughs> uprising, decapitating the Tanistrophians. <laughs> That is a very cool. What a as 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 a friend of mine likes to say, the more tragic the death, the cooler the fossils end up being. It's it's so interesting. What a what a cool grizzly find. Now I, I did have the thought that it still could be scavenging. Absolutely. You know, like we see during scavenging, animals will like systematically dismember very often to get to easier to uh, uh, reach chunks or get to a part that now they can get yeah. get better uh, meat from. It's also possible that if the neck came apart during decomposition or something, scavengers may have gone for those broken edges. Yes. So you may get bite marks or chew marks on those broken places where more flesh was exposed or something because it had already started to come apart. So we don't know that this was a targeted hit on long, long-necked uh, right. reptiles. <laughs> but... It, it sure does seem like there is some consistent feeding pattern yeah. in regards to the long skinny neck of at least this group of reptiles. Very interesting. I've got one more bit of news, which is also about snakes. I'm not even pretending we're talking about <laughs> fossils and evolution in this one. This is about a modern snake species, a modern study on snakes that do cartwheels. Ooh. Rolling snakes. Very cool stuff. This is research by Evan Sunghwat Kwa et al. in Biotropica, and we'll link to an article in Science Alert by Michelle Starr. The snake in question belongs to the species called dwarf reed snakes, Pseudorabdion longiceps, which are native to Asia. This particular one that was observed in this study was seen in Malaysia, 
They are small, about 20 centimeters or 8 inches, semi-fossorial, so they spend most of their time hiding in leaf litter and forest debris, which is all to say that they are hard to see. Yeah. They, tip, they spend a lot of their time hiding and being small. In this study, they observed an adult individual, dwarf reed snake, in August of 2019, and they note that when it was startled by the approaching researchers, it threw itself into a loop and rolled away. Ha! <laughs> as an escape mechanism. This has never been seen before in snakes, and indeed, this particular kind of motion has not been seen in other animals. It is a fascinating, unique escape mechanism, a manner of getting away from threats. They observed this behavior several times. They got video. It sounds like they either kept approaching... I I think they may have kept approaching it or picked it up and put it back down somewhere to then let it do it again. Because they observed it several times, they got video and images so that they could uh, observe the various steps. Mm -hmm. What exactly is the body doing when this snake does this? And they observed that what it did is that it would start by launching the front part of the body forward, kind of like if you imagine a strike. Yes. Like if you see like a rattlesnake strike, it thrusts the head and neck and front of the body forward. Here, it was doing that as a jump. Mm-hmm. So maybe even more like the gliding snakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll throw their body forward or like sidewinders will do this. Then after the jump was initiated, the snake would flip the tail and back end over the head and throw them forward. And then as the head came down, throw the head and neck forward again. Oh. The end result being effectively... A loop. Yeah. So tail overhead, rolling forward. Okay, okay. So it's not doing a, a, a forward somersault like you might expect. Yeah. This uh, behavior ap- apparently has been reported before anecdotally, mm. but not uh, documented, not observed in a detailed way. They noted that it did this at least one of the times it did this down an incline. But also on flat ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did not need the help of gravity to carry it along. It was able to perpetuate this roll by itself. Because it keeps leaping each time. It's not just rolling. Which makes it an active roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In addition to potentially letting an incline help, that's also really interesting because rolling to escape, which has been seen in other animals... Especially invertebrates. Yep, yep. There are spiders that cartwheel down slopes, and there are beetles and things that will curl up into a ball. Pill bugs will curl up, and then they can roll away. But usually, it's a passive thing. Yeah, you need a hill. You need a hill. You curl up, and then you let gravity do the work. This is act. It'd be like if I cartwheeled to get away from somebody. I have to actually keep cartwheeling. In order to keep moving. Well, it very much makes me think about those that tumble move where you, you they will tuck and roll and then leap into another tuck and roll and then leap into yeah, another yeah. tuck and roll. This is also cool because it's the first time the authors note that escape rolling has been observed in reptiles. Oh. Now you're going to hear that and you're going to be like, wait a minute, what about those lizards? Which was what I thought. And they specifically said in the paper, even armadillo lizards, which yep. are famous for curling themselves up don't actually roll when they do that. No, it's just defensive. They like curl an up, yeah, like an armadillo, to not to, to present all their spiky bits outward 
this is a very unusual a case of a snake doing an active role. Yeah. And another way of locomoting for snakes. Yeah. Which keep coming up with new ways of showing us that they can move around. Oh, man. That is, that is fat. I want to know how fast it is. I that was know. in the paper. Yeah. I think. Hang on. I'll look it up. <laughs> they noted in at least one of the instances the snake was able to cartwheel approximately 1.5 meters or five feet in less than five seconds. Okay. So pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as far as snake movement goes, that is, that is pretty quick. Well, especially for a little, oh, yeah, a little for a guy. Little itty bitty snake. And also for rolling. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. The authors also pointed out that it could function simultaneously as a startle mm-hmm. maneuver. Yep. Which is something you mentioned armadillos. Armadillos very famously, when they get scared, will jump, mm-hmm. and presumably that is meant to be a scare. You you startle whatever's threatening you, which gives them just enough pause for you to have time to get away or roll into a ball or whatever. Yes. I also wonder if this rolling action didn't start from a startle response. Yeah, exactly. That it was I'm gonna flail. And surprise you, and then that became more controlled. Yeah, yeah, it gradually gave rise to this rolling action. Well, and I was happy you mentioned anecdotal reports, because I don't know that these are connected to that at all, but I know I've heard, like, folklore stories of rolling snakes. Hmm. Uh, I think, I don't think any of them were in that region of the world, or from that region of the world, but I've seen, you know, stories and, like, just folk you know, it's silly folk stories, but also just, uh, you know, kind of uh, historical tales of snakes that would usually, like, bite their tail. Like an Ouroboros yes. and then roll and away. Then make a wheel and roll down a hill. And I remember seeing that as a kid and being like, that's funny, but that's very, very silly. Like, right. that's, that doesn't make any sense. That's, that's not at all how a snake works. So the fact that there is one that has found a way to do something close to that is awesome yeah (laughs) what i love that just every few years a study comes out that goes hey snakes can move in this way that we didn't know they could move before right there was one a few years ago that was climbing where they observed uh snakes wrapping themselves like a belt around i think they were poles Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was like a stake that had like a bird house on top of it or something and the snakes would wrap themselves around it like a belt and then shimmy their way up yeah and there was a study that came out that went, yeah, we didn't know they could do that. Uh, careful with your bird feeders. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Very cool stuff. It's just a matter of time until we find the uh, the Donkey Kong 64 snake uh, <laughs> that springs around. <laughs> yeah. This is that Donkey Kong country. Yes, yes. Is where the spring snake is from. <laughs> this, no. Well, that's been some news. Speaking of snakes doing weird stuff that you don't necessarily expect snakes to do. We're going to move on to our main topic about snakes that have taken to the oceans. We're going to move on to our main topic and talk about snakes that have taken to a life at sea. Marine serpents, the adaptations and evolutions that go along with it. Stay tuned. As I've mentioned before on the podcast many times, one of the things that I think is so super cool about snakes is the way that they have achieved an incredible diversity of lifestyles, habitats, habits, 
all while maintaining this relatively simple body plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, just long without legs. Yes. There are snakes that climb. There are snakes that dig. There are snakes that glide. There are also a lot of snakes that have aquatic lifestyles that are good at swimming, moving in and out of the water, hunting in the water. Most of the time, these are freshwater snakes. Yes. These are all over the world. We've got a bunch of them here where we live. We've got water snakes. We've got copperheads and cottonmouths in this part of the country that are snakes that enjoy going into the water, get food in the water. Basically, anywhere there's snakes, there are snakes that do stuff like that. Yeah, they are really, really good in in streams and rivers and lakes and stuff. Much rarer are snakes that are good at going into salt water. Coastal or brackish or even actually out in the ocean. But there are actually quite a handful of groups of snakes that have adapted to tolerate salt water to some degree. There are some that can go into salt water that they don't very often. There are some that are actually quite good at moving in and out of salt water. It's not very much in the grand scheme of snakes, but it is more than you might expect. We'll talk some about that diversity and what snakes are okay or pretty good at salt water a bit later on. But for our discussion of marine snakes, we will start and focus mainly on the one group of snakes that is so good at being in the sea that they have been called sea snakes. Yeah, no, that they 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 are aptly named. <laughs> this is a good. There are lots of snakes that can do salt water. There is one group that are called sea snakes. They are sometimes called the true sea snakes to differentiate them from others. Yeah. The true sea snakes is one group of of related species, about 60 species within this group that are mainly found in shallow seas around Australia. Southeast Asia, and the surrounding regions, these parts of the Indian and Pacific Oceans. There are a handful of species in this group that are semi-marine, that they go in and out of salt water, but most of the species within this group are fully aquatic, spend basically all of their time in the water, and particularly in salt water. These snakes can be found in brackish waters, so lagoons, mangroves, near the coast, places where salt water and fresh water are mixing, and truly marine habitats. Shallow oceans, coral reefs. They're often found hunting in and around coral reefs. That's what I see uh, the reconstruction for habitats for them when Mm -hmm. I've seen them in, in aquariums is usually a reef. Yeah, and there's a bunch of cool videos online of uh, from documentaries of sea snakes swimming around coral and stuff like that. The true sea snakes all belong to a subfamily called Hydrophianae. This subfamily includes two general categories of snakes. About a hundred species in this subfamily are land snakes. Interesting. Native to Australia, mostly Australia and nearby islands. This group includes tiger snakes, brown snakes, taipans, a lot of Australia's most famous snakes. Within this group, there is a radiation a related group of lineages of about 60 species of sea snakes, the ones who have taken to the oceans. This whole group is within the big snake family, Elapidae. Yes. Elapidae also includes cobras, coral snakes, mambas, crates. This is one of the big, basically one of the two big families of famously venomous snakes. Yeah. Sea snakes originated as part of this group of Australian and nearby 
land-based elapids. Which, that is a high density of awesome snakes in one group. It's, it's, a, it's a good family. <laughs> it's a good subfamily. Like, Australia's got it going on. It, it, <laughs> Hydrophinae? Hydrophinae. Hydrophinae. Which are named hydrophi. They're named for the genus Hydrophus, mm-hmm. which means water snake. Yep, yep. And we're going to talk a bunch about that genus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the sea snakes themselves, the majority of the species are in two genera. Okay. There's Apisurus, which has, I think, about 10 species in it, and Hydrophus, which has about 50 species. Woo. These are sort of the two big radiations of sea snakes. And then there are a handful of other genera with some more species within them. The distribution of sea snakes. So most of the time we talk about distribution and it's this continent and these nearby islands. Yeah. With sea snakes, it's mostly the coasts <laughs> around those land masses. Uh, tropical and subtropical waters of the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Shallow waters around Australia, New Guinea, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, and those nearby areas. Sea snakes are generally those that aren't found on the coast in those brackish estuarine habitats are found in the shallow parts of the seas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, coral reefs, the, the place where there's still light that they don't tend to get out in the open ocean. There is one exception. Ooh. The species Hydrophus platurus, uh, which you'll also uh, see still called Palamus platurus. Okay. The yellow-bellied sea snake is the only known open ocean snake pelagic snake they are found in oceans around the world yeah they go out into the open ocean there was actually a study that came out not too long ago that investigated the question of are these snakes still dependent on freshwater to drink and found that they do and they drink pools of freshwater that gather on the surface of the ocean after it rains yeah that hasn't yet mixed with the seawater yep very cool stuff this is the only species that lives out in the open ocean. Unsurprisingly, that makes them also the species with the most, with the widest range. Yeah. They are found extremely wide ranging. They are also the only species of true sea snake to be found in the Americas. Yep, yep. They make it to the coasts. So you can find them on like off the coast of California, Peru, things like that. They're also found in Hawaii. So this is a species of sea snake that has made it very widespread. Sea snakes generally, outside of this range they typically inhabit, are not found in, for example, polar seas. Yep, yep. They don't get where it's cold. They're not found in super salty regions like the Red Sea, for example. And, quite famously, there are no sea snakes in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. They just didn't make it there. The ba- whatever barriers exist, sea snakes, modern sea snakes have not made it into the Atlantic. There have been some reports of sea snakes appearing in the Atlantic Ocean, but as far as I know, there is, it's not established that there are populations that have settled in any part of the Atlantic. Which is always such a, a weird aspect of uh, ocean biogeography to me. Mm-hmm. Of like, but it... Can't you swim there? Yep. Like, and it might be that in order to get around the continents, you'd have to go into colder seas. Yeah, they might have not a a sustainable, survivable path. Yes, that the cold waters very far south are just a barrier for them. I think there, it's suspected that every now and then a sea snake will make it through like the Panama Canal. Yeah, and end up in the Atlantic Ocean. But at least so far, 
because there ha- this I have seen reports and, and articles online that discuss as temperatures get warmer around the world, will that open up pathways for sea snakes to make it into the Atlantic? Yep. At least for now, sea snakes are not, there are not populations of sea snakes in the Atlantic. Very interesting. Now, as you might imagine, as with any group of vertebrates that has adapted from the land to the sea, sea snakes have a whole bunch of nifty adaptations that allow them to survive and thrive in these ocean habitats. The most obvious of these is the shape of their body. Sea snake bodies tend to be relatively narrow and tall compared to other snakes. Yep, yep. They swim side to side, like most animals swim side to side, and having a taller, narrower frame gives them more surface area to push against the water side to side. They've made their bodies paddle-shaped. Yes, absolutely. Incidentally... Freshwater snakes, a number of freshwater snakes, are known to be able to choose to flatten their bodies like that. Oh, okay. When they go swimming, they'll kind of suck in and make their body narrower and taller. I don't know if they're actually sucking in, but they're they're compressing their body side to side to give themselves a little bit of an edge while swimming. I didn't know that. Kind of the same way that some snakes will flatten downwards when trying to... Not be moved or hide against yeah, the, the or rocks or something. Puff up to look wider and bigger and everything. Yeah. Like they have very... Or gliding f- snakes will yes. do it to glide. Yeah, it's the, that's how uh, cobras do their hood is by flattening out the ribs. Mm-hmm. Like they have very flexible ribs and skeletons. Yeah. Freshwater so. snakes will often flatten sideways, right? right? Narrower to help with swimming. Sea snakes are naturally built that yeah, way. Yeah, permanently. That's just their that default their shape. shape. Here's a fun note that I knew you would appreciate. I found one study that's, that quantified this difference. Oh, yeah. That was like, oh, let's actually measure what is the difference. And what they found, at least for the sea snakes they studied, is that the bodies of sea snakes tend not to actually be narrower than land snakes, but taller. That makes sense. So they're similarly wide, but what they've evolved is to be taller from belly to back. That you've added keels to the to the top and bottom to expand your shape not narrowed it down like a ribbon yeah they're not actually thinner but they are taller yeah gives them that profile well yeah because now you don't lose mass and you can still be good at swimming yes you still have room for all of your food and stuff that needs to go in there in addition to that sea snakes also tend to have paddle shaped tails Mm -hmm. and this sounds like it's not just an extension of the body, when you look at, if you look up videos of sea snakes, you can actually see where the tail is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is this distinct paddle shape, very similar to a lot of other aquatic animals. In these sea snakes, the paddle tail is supported by spines coming off the vertebrae, top and bottom, that help to support this paddle shape that they're using for swimming. So it is a distinct swimming tail. Yes, you can see it in the skeleton. Yes. There is the tail. Sea snakes also generally that why that sort of taller shape of the body often gets more dramatic toward the back of the body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the front half won't be as extreme, and then the back half will be noticeably taller to help with that swimming because you're using basically your whole body to get propulsion. Yeah, well, yeah, because that that's that's how long-bodied things swim. Is you yes. you wiggle your whole body like an eel, and they they kind of grade the tallness as they get closer and closer to that tail thin. And then at the end, there is a paddle at the end of it. Sea snakes tend also to have small belly scales, 
In land snakes, they maintain these wide scales on the belly because that helps to get traction while slithering around. That helps to provide that grip. Sea snakes have smaller belly scales because they don't need that. Yep. This combination of traits, the small belly scales, the tall body, the paddle-shaped tail, also means most sea snakes are basically useless on land. Yes. They have a very difficult time getting around on land. Most sea snakes don't go on land at all. Yeah, I saw. They have given up the ability, like a dolphin. Yes. Like, you just can't do it anymore. Sea snakes also tend to have a bunch of other cool adaptations. They tend to have salt excreting glands in the mouth. Yeah. To help get rid of excess salt. These are also sublingual, mm-hmm. like under the tongue. Very similar to what we talked about with crocs last episode. Yep, that came up when I was taking notes. And it was noted, these are the only two groups to, that we know have done that. With tongue glands. With tongue salt glands. That get rid of salt. It's, you know, that might have happened in fossil groups that hasn't been preserved and mm-hmm. we don't know about. But as far as we have evidence, only crocs and snakes have developed salt glands in the mouth on the tongue. Yeah. It's unique to them, which is super interesting. That's clearly, weird. <laughs> clearly the best way to do it. Yep. <laughs> sea snakes also uh, often have valved nostrils. Makes sense. So they can close the nose. Sea snakes also have large lungs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the, their main adaptation for allowing themselves to get a really big breath of air for long dives. They have now when I say lungs, like most snakes, sea snakes, each each snake has one functioning lung. The other lung tends to be vestigial. And sea snakes, that one lung tends to be quite large. Just like a clown balloon. Yep. Just- <laughs> Sea snakes are also capable of a degree of cutaneous gas exchange. Yeah, I've heard that. Which is to say they can breathe through their skin. They can exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide through their skin to supplement their respiration. This is very much like turtles will do this. Uh, That butt breathing that Mm -hmm. you may have heard us or others talk about is exchanging gas through the skin. There's also a bunch of sensory adaptations. I'll I'll name a couple that I came across. I found a uh, 2019 study that did a genetic analysis of sea snakes and found that they have reduced their set of olfactory genes. Mm. So their sense of smell has been reduced as they moved into the ocean. And then another study the next year, 2020, found that some sea snakes have expanded their color vision genes. So it seems like there may have been a trade-off as they adapted to the sea lowering their smelling ability, but enhancing their color vision. That study also made the really the point that that's really interesting because mammals that move into the sea tend to reduce their color vision. Yes. Like dolphins and, and pinnipeds and mammals that have moved to the sea generally have less color vision than land mammals. Sea snakes seem to have improved, in some cases, their color vision. Which is a really cool thing to note. I wonder if there are, are, are distinctions between snake and mammal eyes that made it made it more beneficial for one group versus the other. Yeah, or the way that they're hunting yep. or, or yep. whatever. Speaking of cool vision, certain species of sea snakes have been noted, specifically in the genus Apisurus, to have what is called phototactic tails. Oh. That is the skin of the tail can sense light and shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't see through their tail, but they can sense light and shadow. And they determined this through experiments that showed that these snakes can react to changes in light on their tail. So that if there is a sudden light or a sudden shadow around that that gets 
on the tail, these snakes can sense that and get away from it. That makes tons of sense. This is a feature that is known in fish, and it's known in some amphibians. Sea snakes are the only reptiles that are known to be able to sense light through the tail. Yeah, because now if if a predator comes from above and casts its shadow on you, you yeah. now have double the chance that you're going to notice that shadow. Yes, very and... handy in the in the water, yes. in the ocean, like, which yeah. is why fish tend to have something mm-hmm. like that. Because mm-hmm. silhouettes are a big part of your strategy when you're Absolutely. in the ocean. Absolutely. <laughs> there are a couple other features that tend to be common among sea snakes that aren't... Uh, I'm going to name a couple that aren't necessarily adaptations for living in the ocean, but probably help. (laughs) Generally speaking, all sea snakes are venomous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is not something that came about as they moved into the ocean. If you recognize the names of any of those relative snakes that I mentioned before, tiger snakes, taipans, cobras, coral snakes, elapids tend to be highly venomous snakes. Yes. Sea snakes have carried that along, and it for sure is helpful when you're trying to catch a fish or something. Sea snakes will hunt by biting, injecting venom, killing that prey very quickly, and then being able to eat it. A venomous bite underwater makes more mechanical sense than trying to constrict or wrestle the prey underwater. Another feature that sea snakes have very famously that is extremely helpful is that they are all live bearers. Mm -hmm. They give live birth. Once again, this is a thing they share with a bunch of their relatives. All those... Land snakes in this subfamily are also live bearers. Lots of other elapids are live bearers. This is one of those things that didn't evolve for being in the ocean. But if you didn't have this, you wouldn't be able to be fully aquatic. Mm -hmm. Because reptile eggs can't survive in the water. If you couldn't, if you had to lay eggs, you'd have to come back to land to do it like sea turtles. Yes. And yeah, we discussed that with the marine crocs. Mm Mm-hmm. You can still do that, and it can be awkward, but it, you have to figure out a way to come back on land if you're going to retain eggs. So live bearing is an adaptation that for sure has allowed these snakes to become as aquatic as they are. Well, especially for like the yellow-bellied, where it's like you can't live a life like that where you're out. Yeah, in the open ocean. Yeah, full out, full all the way out there. That is very hard to do without being able to also give birth there. Yes. So the true sea snakes tend to do all of their stuff in the ocean. They hunt, they rest, they'll go into little burrows and stuff, they mate and reproduce out in the water. What they're hunting tends to be, unsurprisingly, aquatic prey, Mm -hmm. fish, crustaceans, squids, things like that. One neat thing about sea snakes is that among the sea snake species, there are a bunch of hunting specializations that we see. Very famously, there are a bunch of species that have notably tiny heads, and the front part of the body is much narrower than the back part of the body. Kind of like a screwdriver. If you think of a screwdriver, like the handle is really thick in the back, but then the actual neck and head of the screwdriver is much narrower. Yes. These sea snakes kind of have a shape like that, and what they use that feature for is going into burrows and eating eels and stuff. Yep, yep, yep. They will actually hunt f- eel. Espe- eels are, is mentioned with this strategy quite often because they make burrows. Yes. The snakes will put their narrow front of their body in the burrow and grab the eels right out. Yeah. They have a probing front of the body. Yeah. That is very interesting. There are other species that eat large fish that have very wide gapes of the mouth, kind of the opposite adaptation. 
There are also a few species of sea snake that specialize in eating fish eggs. Hmm. Mostly fish eggs, and they tend to have fewer teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In at least one species, they've lost their fangs completely, and they tend to have reduced or lost venom. Which, yeah, because you don't need to. What do you need venom for? You're going after eggs. These eggs can't do much to defend themselves. You don't need to, to kill them quickly. Yeah, so we see a bunch of hunting specializations among sea snakes. Very interesting. The evolution of this group of sea snakes also includes a number of interesting trends. Once again, one of the most notable of these is that the modern diversity of sea snakes appears to have happened relatively recently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That this is a major diversification and radiation of snakes that the modern species that we see, genetic studies have indicated that they probably diversified to their current extent over the last couple of million years. Two or three million years. This was a very rapid radiation into the sea. That that is really recent. And among that radiation, there are a bunch of interesting convergent features a bunch of the stuff that i just mentioned has evolved multiple times in sea snakes for example paddle tails i mentioned that there are two main groups there's apicerus and its cousins and hydrophus and its cousins those two groups their tails are slightly different Mm -hmm. in that the spines on the vertebrae that are used to support the paddle are different parts of the vertebra Oh. So these are two groups that started from the same basic snake vertebrae, and then as they evolved these paddle tails, chose different spines, particularly on the bottom of the vertebrae, to elongate to support that tail. Yeah, they both extended the parts of the vertebrae, but the specific structure is different. Yes. that that's That's such a beautiful example of a way you can denote convergent evolution of like Mm -hmm. these are basically the same structures but you used this knob on the vertebrae and they used this knob on the vertebrae it ends up looking almost the same once they're done evolving it but but that's a totally different developmental pathway yep that's like if you had two groups of pterosaurs that yes. had a different finger that's exactly that was, what was used to support the wing. That's exactly what I was going to say is it, you would end up with almost identical structures at a glance. But when you actually zoom in, you go, wait, that's number two, not number three. Yep. It would, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, uh, one of the studies I read about that also pointed out that the hydrophus group, their closest cousins among the sea snake group are a group of semi-marine snakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the other group of fully aquatic snakes. So what may have happened is that there was this semi-marine group of snakes and two different groups evolved to be fully marine, separately and convergently evolved those paddle tails. Yes, yes. Also, a bunch of those hunting styles, also convergent. Yeah, yeah. There have been multiple... There are multiple unrelated or more distantly related species that eat fish eggs that have lost their teeth and venom. That eel burrow probing shape, the, the small the head. Plesiosaur snakes. The plesiosaur <laughs> snakes. Um, it, they're called microcephalic Ooh, for their yeah. tiny heads. I read one study that said that feature, that hunting strategy, that, that physical adaptation seems to have evolved at least nine times Wow! in these sea snakes. I mean, like... 
that that actually makes a ton of sense because snakes are great in going into burrows already. Like yeah. your long, skinny animal. There's a ton of snakes today. Land snakes. Yes. That, like rattlesnakes will do that. Gopher snakes. That's why gopher snakes are called that. Yes. They will go into burrows and grab food out of there. So it absolutely makes sense that that would be happening with sea snakes, even if it's just going in between rocks where fish are hiding. So it makes sense that eventually some of them would start specializing to get better and better and better yeah. at that. And apparently it's super good because yeah. they keep doing it. That That is, that is a, it is not surprising that they did that. That is a surprising number of times though. That is very, very cool. Yeah. So these are the true sea snakes and they have, they, they deserve that name. Mm-hmm. It's, I, when I was going over this, I knew sea snakes were really cool and really well adapted to water living i did not realize that sea snakes are arguably the best aquatic reptiles i mean like like we discussed last episode crocs can do the ocean yes. but modern crocs are not no adapted for life at sea there are no fully marine lizards today Mm-mm. we've got marine iguanas and those are semi-aquatic turtles are the one other group among reptiles that ha- uh, fully out to sea you live in the open ocean you are you have flippers and everything but even turtles have to go back to land to lay yes. eggs. And that is a big hindrance for them because yeah. that is when they are most vulnerable. If the beach they lay eggs on gets destroyed or, mm-hmm. or disrupted somehow, that entire breeding population can be put at risk. So, yep. like, that is a major Achilles heel to their marine life. Like, they are one of the exceptions to the, you can't go live out in the middle of the ocean and still lay eggs. Like, well, the leatherback would beg to differ right but you also can travel as far as you want because you're massive right but it does also mean that they have to follow certain migratory pathways you have to go back to the shallows eventually sea snakes don't Mm -hmm. now most sea snakes do live in the shallow ocean anyway which is where the highest density of ocean life is right that's where all the good stuff is that's where you can get sunlight and have things grow so everyone typically wants to live there and then you have open water specialists yes (laughs) So true sea snakes, by far the best, the, the, the snakes that have done this the best mm-hmm. among modern snakes. Not the only ones. Yeah. There is a second group. If you go Googling sea snakes, the second one that will show up is a group called sea crates. Yeah. Sea crates, not the same as land crates. Mm-mm. Those are different. Yeah. So those, those typically are, you know, like uh, wooden will have like ammo and stuff in them. On sure, land. sure. Right. Sea so crates they drop from the, the yep. planes, yep. drop them. Yeah. Sea crates will have like supplies and stuff. This is the word is K R A I T. Yep. As a kid, I was super confused <laughs> the first time someone was like a sea crate. I'm like, what? It doesn't even open. What? What? Also, why would you <laughs> name them that? They, they Nothing about a snake is crate like. <laughs> sea crates are uh, several species within the genus Laticata. These are found similarly around Southeast Asian islands, sometimes down to Australia and nearby regions. Yes. Sea crates are also elapids, so same big group that the other snakes, uh, this other sea, the true sea snakes, co- cobras and things are in. And they are often considered to be cousins of Hydrophianae, the whole group. So the, those land snakes within Hydrophianae evolved from ancestors that are shared with or possibly very similar to the sea crates. So they're not the same group as sea snakes, but they are pretty close. Yeah. They took to the ocean separately, but they are pretty closely related. Sea crates, very notably, are semi-aquatic. 
Mm-hmm. They are amphibious, which is a very weird thing to think about a snake being. Sea crates hunt in the water. They eat, again, fish, eels, squid, crustaceans, things like that. But they go back and forth. They come onto land. They go to the water to hunt, but they come onto land for everything else. To rest, to shed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to reproduce, and to lay eggs. Gotcha. Sea crates are oviparous. They lay eggs, which means they have to come back on land in order to have babies. Interesting. And sea crates have a mix of adaptations. Makes sense. So on the one hand, they also have those salt glands in the tongue, uh, those sublingual under the tongue salt glands. They also have paddle-shaped tails, although uh, as far as I could, re- I read the paddle tails in sea crates are not supported by the skeleton. Oh. They're soft tissue. It's scale and and, uh, and, and skin, and I skin suppose. And stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. But also, they have the wide belly scales that we see in land snakes, which makes sense because they still need to be fairly capable on land. I've read some stuff that has indicated that sea crates are better in the water than they are on land. Yes. Kind of like sea turtles are. They, it can come on land, but... It, it is not nearly as graceful. Right. This isn't where you really want to be. Yes. You have to be here. You don't. If you could choose, you wouldn't be up here. Yep. It, it, there's tons of semi-aquatic animals that are like that, where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, frogs can hop and they're great. But once you put them in the water, you're like, okay, no, that this is right. where you shine. Well, like seals are <laughs> uh-huh. like that. It's like, yeah, you are way better in the water. Sea crates are very much like that. That You... you belong in the water but you are tethered to the land yes because parts of your life have to take place there but they have a bunch of those same features that body shape the salt glands are convergently evolved with the true sea snakes very cool so we've got two sort of major groups of famously marine or semi-marine modern snakes there are a handful of others that are honorable mentions that i want to point out The first, which is hardly an honorable mention. This is one that I knew I was going to talk about before I even started looking at lists. File snakes. Yeah. These are snakes in the genus Acrocortis. They are also called elephant trunk snakes. Yep. And if you look up a picture of them, you'll see why. Yep. They have this loose baggy skin and they do kind of look like an elephant's trunk. Yes. Just laying on the ground. Like like wrinkly gray elephant skin. (laughs) (laughs) File snakes are... Aquatic snakes. They are found in Australia and tropical parts of Asia. There are three modern species. They are fully aquatic. Mm -hmm. They spend basically their entire lives in the water. They are mainly found, they are found commonly in freshwater, ponds, streams, lakes, and such, but also fairly commonly found in brackish or saltwater, in coastal regions, in estuaries, they hunt aquatic prey, so they are not nearly as saltwater adapted as, say, the true sea snakes, but they are a group that does very well in salt water. They also have a bunch of adaptations that help them to do that, some of which will sound extremely familiar. They have flat tails. <laughs> they also have evolved sublingual salt glands. <laughs> they have very large lungs. They have a degree of cutaneous respiration. They can exchange gas through their skin. I, I've, I've heard that associated with their loose, baggy skin yeah. in things before. Mm-hmm. That, that could be why they have that more surface area to the skin. Yes. They also lack those broad belly scales, mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. them not as good on land. And then they also have a couple of things that are unique to them. For one, file snakes 
eyes and nostrils are positioned high on the head. Yeah. Like a crocodile. Mm-hmm. That that way they can just poke the eyes or nostrils out of the water when they need to look around or get a breath or something. They also have distinctly rough scales. Yes. On you know, They're covered in these very rough scales. Thus the name. <laughs> Thus the file snakes, which appears to be an adaptation for holding onto fish. They are not venomous. Yeah. The sea crates and the sea snakes are elapids. Those are venomous snakes. Acrocortis file snakes are not. They're constrictors. And so they have this rough skin for f- making sure fish don't get away when they're trying to wrap around them. Yeah, to add grip when you're trying to wrap around a slippery prey item. Yeah. Very, which is so odd. Like, that's such a weird concept to think of. Sh- yeah, you have sandpaper skin. Yeah, that, and that you're sh- squeezing a fish to then swallow it is is just a very... Uh, unexpected way to hunt Mm -hmm. but it's cool that we can see that it is possible yes file snake skin is also noted to be highly sensitive to water motion Mm. they have extra nerve endings in the skin that allow them to sense movement in the water like fish are often capable of doing file snakes also give live birth very handy and they don't have the tall narrow bodies that we see in sea snakes, but they can flatten their bodies into that shape. Yes. When it's time for swimming. File snakes are a really interesting group because they are not dedicated marine snakes. They are dedicated water snakes. They are not dedicated marine, but they're extremely good at surviving in both fresh and salt water. And they've got a bunch of adaptations that are shared with sea snakes and that are distinct from sea snakes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't remember where I read this, but years ago I read something that said file snakes might arguably be the most adapted to aquatic life of snakes. Yeah, yeah. They have a bunch of adaptations that even true sea snakes don't have. Well, and you mentioning how recent uh, uh, the modern diversification of sea snakes started, mm-hmm. I immediately wonder if given another five, 10 million years, would we start seeing, you know, coastal reef file snakes that have mm-hmm. adapted for moving farther and farther from land? Yeah. And I don't know. Right. Because they also live. So a, an interesting trend that people may have noticed at this point, all three of the groups that I've mentioned are from the same part of the world. Yes. Aus- Australasia, uh, Australia, Southeast Asia, and then that nearby Indonesia, Philippines, that whole region. This is the place to be aquatic snakes in our modern world, apparently. And then there are a handful of other groups that I'll give honorable mentions to. Like I mentioned earlier, tons of groups have freshwater specialists. And in many of those groups, there are at least a handful of species that are good at tolerating brackish environments that go into mangroves and estuaries and things like that. There are a bunch of snakes in the family Colubridae. Colubridae is the... the biggest, the the giant family of snakes all around the world today. Here in North America, for example, we have Nerodia, Mm -hmm. our water snakes. In this region, like Will and I could walk outside and go find a a stream and very possibly find a water snake. There are certain species of water snakes that will also go into estuaries, mangroves, things like that. That makes sense. There are other snakes that are very similar in across the Americas, in Africa, in Asia, they are all different groups, although they are most of them are also called water snakes. Yep. So African <laughs> water snakes, American water snakes, Asian water snakes, or river snakes. 
there are a bunch of these freshwater specialist groups that have species that will frequent saltwater brackish water, even though they're not nearly as adapted for it as the snakes we've already been talking about. I was literally just thinking that surely our water snake's not the only one called water snake, because we no. we call it that because it's it's the snake you find in the water. <laughs> right. But there's also plenty of water snakes. There are tons of snakes yes. in our region that will also go near or in the water, mm-hmm. right? Copperheads and mm-hmm. cottonmouths are often called water moccasins yes. for that reason. But like, copperheads surely... are, uh, uh, cottonmouths are Agkistrodon piscivorous. Yes. They eat fish. They're yeah. named for eating fish. They are really good in those. Like, I love <laughs> seeing them just floating when they coil up and f- you can coil up on top of the water. And just like a bird. Yeah. Like a seagull. You're just and, hanging and like, out there. Get into a defensive position. On top of the... That's super crazy. Yeah. Incidentally, since you brought it up, the the myth that venomous snakes float and other snakes don't. Not true. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. use that uh, to identify whether a snake is venomous or not. All sna- all sorts of snakes can either sink or float, depending on what they choose to do. Yeah, they are not witches. <laughs> there are There is another family of snakes that comes up particularly as water specialists. This is the family Homolopsidae, which inhabit... Stop me if you've heard this one before... The Indo-Australian region, (laughs) Indonesia, Australia, and so on. This is a family that includes a bunch of water specialists, like tentacled snakes, (gasps) which are the ones that they have a specialized fish hunting strategy. This also includes those crab-eating snakes that pull the crabs apart. Oh, what? And this family's awesome. Man! Submit your request now for an episode about Homolopsidae. Please, I want to learn more about them. (laughs) A bunch of species in this group are highly aquatic. Often freshwater, but also not uncommonly found in tidal pools, mangroves, things like that. These others, so all the snakes I'm talking about, I've grouped in others. <laughs> Most of these also give live birth. Most of these are often seen to flatten their bodies as they swim. So there's there's actually this really interesting diversity of modern snakes that have evolved convergent features or abilities for lives in the water and varying degrees of how good you are in actual marine environments. It's really interesting looking at the adaptations for uh, aquatic and marine life in these various groups, because a lot of them overlap with other groups. You know, salt glands we talked mm-hmm. about in the Marine Crocs episode is soup that we see that in basically every group that goes back to the water right. and then back into the ocean you're going to have to deal with that salt. Big lungs, that's mm-hmm. pretty standard. Yep. Uh, and so it's it's neat seeing all of those things that are expected convergences and then the things that are, you know, you need to now to be good at swimming, but you don't have a body shape that is like most secondarily yes. aquatic tetrapods. Snakes are not evolving flippers. Yeah. Because they don't have a thing to turn into a flipper. So, and you, you need some sort of paddly thing. Mm-hmm. And you have a tail. Why not all of me? Yes, but you can do it in a way others can't quite. And very similarly, when we talked about marine crocs, one of the most common parts of the body that adapted different shapes associated with marine habits, as you discussed, was the snout. Yes. The shape of the face, which snakes aren't doing Mm -hmm. because they have an extremely different skull shape and snout shape and way of using their mouths. And so the the it's really interesting to see the pressures on, you know, what shows up. I had that moment when you mentioned their nostrils being able to close mm-hmm. and it clicked that like I didn't mention that with Crocs, but that's just I think Crocs can do. Yeah, like, just in general. All Crocs can close their nose and ears. That's just what they can do. And 
so it's it's neat seeing the similarity show up, but then also the ways that they are doing it differently mm-hmm. and how their body is leading them to very different specializations. You know, like burrow feeding, you know, like them. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have marine crocs that are diving into burrows yeah. and grabbing eels out of them, but snakes are doing it. And and the and similarly, snakes do not have long, toothy snouts mm-hmm. to grab at fish and stuff. It's 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 a very interesting mixture, of, as is often the case with you know convergent, mm-hmm. group, but particularly just because it's such a different body shape. Very interesting mosaic of similarities and unique, odd ways of being in yeah. the ocean. So overall, when we look at snakes in the modern world, we see this fascinating continuation of this trend that snakes are, as I said before, as I've said many times, snakes are extremely good at adapting to a whole bunch of different lifestyles, despite being just worm shaped. Mm -hmm. And apparently one of the things that they've been really good at is just being the best in the ocean. Snakes are the closest we have today to mosasaurs. They are like the we have sea serpents. Yes actually fully dedicated out in the ocean snakes have adapted to ocean life in many different ways in multiple different groups and in one group to be truly sea creatures well and the first time i i really started to understand how successful sea snakes were you know when i was younger i remember one of the things that made that surprising for me was the fact that snakes in general are good swimmers you know like just as a group they swim very well because that body shape if you wiggle that shape through the water you create propulsion yeah if you take a rope or something and you wiggle it through the water you will create a little bit of propulsion well and it's the same way they move on land yes so you you don't actually have to change very much to go from moving on land to moving in the ocean so they're very effective but they're not like speedy you know Mm -hmm. they're not like zipping around like an otter or a fish or even a frog so, and in, in freshwater situations, it's like, all right, that's fine because you can still come on land and hunt there or, you know, hang out in the shallows, but more open water. I remember having the mentality of like, how are you catching, like, mm-hmm. how are you competing? You know, even when you become more hydrodynamic with a paddle and, and everything, how are you not getting just sw- with everyone swimming circles around you? But they're able to be surprisingly effective yeah. for not being fish-shaped. Then I think that's the thing that sticks in my head the most is yeah. almost all other groups, seals, dolphins, even the marine crocs, all, all kind of go, all right, so a little sharky, a little yeah. sharky in our shape. Let's be sure. that like, Listen, we, we see who's doing yes. it best. Natural selection knows what it's doing. Sharky. This is what's going to happen. They can't do sharky. Cannot really. do that. Like, not an option. Like, maybe... Hundreds of millions of years from now, we will have torpedo shaped spines coming off. Yeah. The form fins. Well, and it's funny because they're not fish shaped, except that they are fish. They're eel shaped. Yes. They are shaped like the fish that are shaped that way. Yes. And I and I, <laughs> it is so easy to miss those kind of comparisons when it's like, well, actually, no, there's a whole group of extremely successful fish oh. that did this like the snakes are doing it. Just yeah. it is we expect you to take a fish shape. A a typical tuna shape. Yep. And what is fascinating, even more so, so today there is this great diversity of saltwater snakes, sea snakes. There is also an incredible diversity of sea snakes in the past. Yes. There are tons of ancient examples of this. After the break, 
we will work our way back in time and go over the history of snakes in the ocean. It is an extensive history indeed. As with most groups, when investigating the evolutionary history of sea snakes, we turn to fossils and genetics. Mm -hmm. Now, I went searching for a fossil record of modern groups of sea snakes, and as far as I can tell from a quick literature search, there is basically no fossil record of modern sea snakes. Yeah. Like, the true sea... I did not find a single record of true sea snake fossils. There are fossils of other hydrophian snakes, the Mm -hmm. land snakes... There are fossils of Australian uh, snakes, tiger snakes, brown snakes, or at least members of those lineages. Yes. I did find a single mention of a single fossil vertebra from around 20 million years ago, early Miocene, that has been identified as possibly sea crate, Laticada, but that's all that I found. Mm -hmm. So the fossil record of sea snakes as we have them today is basically non-existent. I did, however, find... That Acrocordidae, the file snakes, apparently have an incredible fossil record. Yes! <laughs> there is, I, one paper noted that there are fossils of Acrocordids from the Miocene of Pakistan, India, Nepal, and Thailand, that there are over a thousand known fossils of Acrocordis, of this family of snakes. What? Yay! They are all known from river deposits. And the like, so they appear to, those all appear to be freshwater, or at least part of the time freshwater. Mm -hmm. That's very hard to tell. But yeah, out of all the snakes, that one group that today has three weird species, apparently they have a great fossil record in that part of the world. Well, all right. I've always had a soft spot for... (laughs) They're so cool. For file snakes. So that makes me very happy. Very cool. However, there have been some interesting things investigated using the genetics of modern sea snakes looking into their evolution. As I mentioned earlier, the modern sea snake groups, that that hydrophiana, especially the genus Hydrophis, are a relatively recent radiation of snakes that seems to have started maybe two or three million years ago or thereabouts, and very rapidly given rise to the dozens of species that we have today. Which we will often see when a group moves into a an a habitat where there are not others of its its kind already there. Yes. That it, you have all this new playground to diversify into. There's also an interesting note on their evolution that came up not too long ago in a news piece that we discussed on the podcast. Oh, yeah. The modern true sea snakes are a radiation from within this group of mostly Australian land snakes. And that major group of snakes are most closely related to relatives in Southeast Asia, Mm -hmm. which means that their ancestors somehow made it from Southeast Asia to the Australian region, which could have been just going from island to island, could have been that every now and then they got washed across a part of the sea. We see that happen in other groups that disperse across waterways. Yes. But there have been some recent studies, one of which was in our news, that have found hints in the genetics of those land snakes that they may have come from ancestors that were at least partially marine. Yeah. That there are features in their genes that make sense for marine snakes to have. And if that's true, then we may have had a group of snakes from Southeast Asia 
that moved into semi-marine habits and being semi-marine were able to spread down to Australia, move onto land and give rise to those modern snakes, which then themselves gave rise to our modern true sea snakes. And if that's the case, then that is an ancient group of marine snakes. Yes. That isn't around anymore. Although, which may have been very closely related to modern sea crates. Oh, that would make sense. could be that sea crates are part of this ancient lineage that eventually gave rise to that Australian radiation, which then gave rise to true sea snakes today. Yeah. So there may have been there, there. And again, this is some studies have found this. There are other options. But there may have been this moving in and out of marine habitats in the history of this branch of snakes. Which isn't, you know, too insane. We, we talked about that once again with crocs, that we actually see them moving back and forth between freshwater and saltwater mm-hmm. throughout the fossil record almost 10 different times. Right. And apparently, also like crocs, it seems like it's not all that hard for snakes to do it. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of groups today that have made that transition from land to freshwater or freshwater to saltwater and perhaps land to saltwater. These transitions seem to be at least more common than you might expect. But the the idea that we had a potential marine period uh, in their evolutionary history that then gave rise to terrestrial lineages and then later to other marine lineages. Yeah, and then to fully marine yes, lineages. Yes, like full-blown. That That's a very interesting, uh, like, like graph pattern. Yeah, just in and out, back and forth across that coastal barrier. Yeah. So we have some insights into the evolutionary history of our modern sea snakes. If we go back in time further, there are other extinct groups of sea snakes. And unlike some examples that we talk about on the podcast where it's like, oh yeah, well, and then there was this one other weird one. There are tons of ancient sea snakes. If we go back in time to the Paleogene, the first chunk of the Cenozoic era, and especially the Eocene around 50 to 40 million years ago, the Eocene was full of sea snakes. (laughs) There were tons of them. The most famous of these groups is a family called Paleophiidae, which includes about 20 named extinct species in the genera Paleophis, Pterosphenus, and Archaeophis. These are ancient snakes known, the fossils have been found in Europe, Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and the Americas, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all across, essentially around the Atlantic Ocean and nearby seas. A few of these are known from nearly complete skeletons, so we've got a really good whole look at the snake. Wow. Notably, if I remember right, a couple of species of Archaeophis are known from really good specimens. Most of them, like most fossil snakes, are known from isolated ribs and vertebrae. But they can be identified as sea snakes because of a handful of features. One, the vertebrae themselves, the backbones, tend to be narrow and tall. Makes sense. They are laterally compressed. Also, the ribs of these snakes tend to be weakly curved. They're not quite as roundly curved as others. And together, this rib and vertebra shape would give them a tall, narrow body shape like we see in sea snakes today. Well, and that's also a body plan that doesn't make a lot of sense for many other habitats or behaviors. Right. Like, that, you know, like you're in a tree yeah, this with that body shape. Actually help you if you're on land or climbing or something. It, as far as, you know, we know, this really only help you if you're swimming. Yes. Also, speaking of things that really only help you when you're swimming, these paleophyid snakes also tend to have, uh, and this is a term we've used before, pachyostosis. 
mm-hmm, mm-hmm. slash osteosclerosis, which is to say particularly dense or compact or thickened bone. Yes. This is something that we see over and over and over again in vertebrates that return to the sea or that spend a lot of time in the water. You see this in penguins. You see this in manatees. Yeah, I was going to say, manatee ribs are the the go-to example that I always think of because they're just like a rock in the shape of a rib. Yes. These snakes have these compact skeletal structures that are also very commonly associated with life in the water. Across... These several species of this group, there are varying degrees of these adaptations. So some have more extreme versions of this, more compression of the vertebrae, more compactness of the bone compared to others, which might indicate that like modern sea snakes, there were some that were semi-aquatic. There were some that were more dedicated aquatic. Yeah, there's a gradient. Mm -hmm. In some, there have been some studies that have found uh, certain species have vertebrae that are highly vascularized. So lots of space for uh, circulatory system action, which might indicate that they were growing faster or had a higher metabolism, which not necessarily that they were truly warm blooded, but like we discussed with marine crocs, like we've talked about with mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs, a higher metabolism, maybe maintaining a higher temperature is something we often see in reptile groups that move into the water. Because if you're going to be swimming, swimming takes a good bit of energy. And if you want to swim long distances or be swimming actively, you know, uh, aggressively, potentially, yes. that takes energy. Also, the ocean is cold. It is. It's cold. And so <laughs> having higher metabolism helps to stay warm. It's not a total coincidence that all our modern sea snakes live in the tropics. Yes. And subtropics. That's where it's warm. These paleophyid Eocene sea snakes are also notable for the environments they're found in. The fossils themselves tend to be found in deposits, geologic formations, that are ancient coasts or estuaries or, or lagoons, the kind of sedimentary deposits you found in, find in those areas. And they are found alongside the fossils of fish and sharks and aquatic turtles and things like that. Various species, again, based on where they've been found, seem to have been freshwater or brackish or truly marine. Again, that gradient like we see in modern sea snakes. Some of them, I've seen this noted about the genus Pterosphenus, have even been found in what appear to be open marine environments and possibly open ocean pelagic snakes, which is to say that this group of Eocene snakes seems to have occupied that same range of different water habitats as modern groups of sea snakes. Yeah. They are also very broadly distributed. The genus Paleophis, its its species are found all around the Atlantic. So this is a cool. This is a time period where there were sea snakes in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, uh, that are now extinct. I had that thought of uh, maybe today's sea snakes are just respecting those ancient boundary. Right. That's not our territory. Yes. That's that's where the other the ancient sea snakes are. That's where their ghosts are. I yeah. don't want to go in there. <laughs> Another thing that the Paleophyid sea snakes are very famous for is their size. Yeah, this came up in episode three when we talked about ancient snakes. The smallest of the paleophyids, as I, I've seen mentioned a number of times, Paleophis casei, which comes from the Eocene of Mississippi, might have been as small as half a meter to a meter, so a couple of feet long, not very big. And then the famous Paleophis coliseus from the Eocene of Mali in Africa has been estimated to have been at least nine meters long. 
possibly longer. I've seen estimates that go higher, but the one I see most commonly and most confidently asserted, nine meters, that is a 30-foot-long sea snake. Yeah. I didn't mention this at the top. The sea snakes that we have around here today are mostly snake-sized. Yep. So they, they, they are a meter, maybe a couple of meters, right, several feet long. Eh, more or less generally average size for snakes. Yes. Or at least for medium-sized snakes. A 30-foot sea snake, as a reminder for modern comparison, there are no modern snake species that are known to get to 30 feet. Yep. There are a couple that get close. Yes. <laughs> but th- that is that is a very, very large snake. Yeah. Well, and, and that is so interesting, you know, because, like, very often you will find particularly large members of a group in the fossil record because now you're you're dealing with a much bigger sample size of the yeah. history. Yeah. It, how likely is it that the largest member is alive while we're alive? There's only a few examples that that tends to happen with because statistically it happened at some other time. It's odd that this is not only bigger than snakes today, but also marine, like also saltwater. Which on the one hand is not terribly surprising because large body size is another thing that we see happen a lot in secondarily aquatic animals. It was something I thought to mention in the first part, but I knew we would get here. Yep. yep. It is kind of weird that sea snakes today didn't follow the trend that lots of others do in getting beefier. Yeah. And they are, you know, they're taller. Yes. They've got a bit more mass to them, potentially. They're not tiny. They're you know, not they, like, they, you know, ring neck snake, you know, itty bitty shoelace snakes. Yeah, they are often a, you know, a good size for a snake, but they're not big python or boa or anaconda size. Yeah. These were sea snakes that got bigger than modern anacondas, bigger than the biggest snakes that we have today. Which is vi- not only that, but one of the biggest snakes known in the fossil record. Yes. Not quite Titanoboa, but, but like within the top five known largest species of ancient snakes. And that that I I, I can't like my, my brain is is just rapid firing of how were you hunting at that size? Yeah. Were you just eating big fish? Were you eating big fish? Were you hunting more like an anaconda where you're sitting and waiting because you're so big? Or mm. Are you a more active swimmer like a lot of modern sea snakes are? Yeah. And you're tracking your prey down to where it's like, were you a really big sea snake like we think of? Or were you doing something different to be that size? Is there a reason ours don't get that big? Right, right. There are a few things we can't tell necessarily about them from the fossils. For example, we don't know if they're venomous or not. They, uh, there, there is a lot of uncertainty about where they fit. Mm-hmm, in the snake mm-hmm. family tree, it has been suggested in the past that they might be relatives of Acrocortis, the file snakes. Ooh. But as far as I know, that is uncertain because snake phylogeny is always uncertain. Yes. But there, it's totally reasonable to suspect that they may have also been giving live birth, that they may have had... A, did they have sublingual salt glands? Right? But probably. Yes. It seems like all the other snakes are doing it. Well, and that's... Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about is, you know, we talked about how we can't track salt glands in a lot of fossil groups because it's typically soft tissue. Mm-hmm. Rare examples like the Thalatosuchians that had salt glands that took up space in the skull yes. These is unusual. Snakes, you would imagine they would have had to have had some type mm-hmm. of salt excreting gland. And so... Are snakes consistent like they are today? Is that a thing that's weirdly consistent with snakes? Or did they also have weird variety of salt gland placement? The other thing that's cool is that this Eocene radiation of paleophyid marine snakes are not the only marine snakes of the Eocene. There are multiple other families of snakes 
that seem to have been marine. Man, marine fossil marine sea snakes don't get talked about enough because these are all so... They're super cool. They're super cool, but they I, I, I had no clue. We had multiple groups. Yeah. There is a family called Nigerophiidae, which includes Nigerophis and I think at least one other genus. There's Russellophiidae, which includes Russellophis and I think some other stuff. Both families with a handful of species. Both found from Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Both also have a lot of these same adaptations and are found in marine or sem- or, or near marine habitats. There's also Anomalophus, which is sometimes put in its own family, Anomalophiidae, which also might be marine. So there's j- the Eocene was a time of diverse and widespread ocean snakes, kind of like today is, say- where we have diverse and widespread ocean snakes. Why there was such a major diversity of sea snakes in the Eocene is this is a big question. It's possible that these are all related snakes, mm-hmm. and it was just one big radiation, kind of like with our modern snakes, that the true sea snakes, that maybe there was one ancestral group that was semi-aquatic or semi-marine, and it gave rise to this diversity of snakes. That already had adaptations that made it very, very easy to transition, yeah. so that could transition could happen multiple times. A lot of researchers will also point out that the Eocene was extra warm, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? This is right around the time of the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, episode 103, which had record high temperatures, which absolutely helps things like reptiles to diversify. Although it is important to point out that today we have a whole bunch of diversity of sea snakes and that that radiation of modern sea snakes, as I mentioned, seems to have taken place over the last couple million years, and the last couple million years were the Ice Age. Yeah. So it can't just be, like, that the global climate can't be the only factor that's involved here, although it certainly may have helped. Yes. It's also possible that some of these groups got started much earlier. There are records uh, of a couple of these families identified from the late Cretaceous. So they may have gotten started back then and then maybe radiated in the Paleocene and Eocene. So today we have a bunch of sea snakes. The Eocene was this time of, of tons, which which is also really cool because this is also when like whales are just getting their start. And a lot of our modern groups of, of mammals are really getting their start. The Eocene was an age of sea snakes. Well, and it, it's so easy and, and you can't help but ask the question of, all right, if we saw a big diversification of sea snakes then and we saw it recently into today what's similar you know what's happening right. or are there a bunch of sea snakes in the middle that we just don't have yes. a fossil record of yet are we missing data or are the, the are the diversifications unrelated you know that there's not actually a, yeah. the same the, cause it just so happened yep that these two times this set of things lined up then and then a different set of things lined up recently yeah. and what makes it even more exciting is that the eocene is not the only ancient age with a bunch of sea snakes If we continue to move back in time, the early late Cretaceous also had a bunch of sea snakes. This is a group called Simoleophiidae, which are also, I think, uh, uh, earlier were called Pachyophiidae. Okay. Nowadays, it seems Simoleophiidae is the common, the, the, the more accepted family name. This is a group from the Cretaceous period. So now we're in the Mesozoic, Age of Dinosaurs, that includes several genera of marine snakes. Nice. These include Pachyrachis, Pachyophis, Hasiophis, Eupodophis, Simoleophis, and Mesophis. Many of those are known from multiple partial or nearly complete skeletons. 
So really good fossils of these snakes. And they're mostly known from the Cenomanian, which is the earliest part of the late Cretaceous. So we're in that 100 million to 90 million or so years ago as we transition from the early Cretaceous to the late Cretaceous. These snakes are known from Europe, the Middle East, and Northern Africa, so that particular region of the world, and are found in shallow ocean deposits around the Tethys Sea. This was an ancient sea that actually, if if you remember in the times we've talked about Pangaea, we've talked about how Pangaea, the the supercontinent of Pangaea, had sort of a C shape, Mm -hmm. C like the letter C, as in for cookie. Mm Mm-hmm. The inside part of that letter C, more or less, is the Tethys, the Tethys Ocean. These were a bunch of sea snakes that lived around the borders of the Tethys Ocean. Once again, we see a whole bunch of features that are typical of aquatic snakes. The vertebrae and the ribs show that same sort of feature of laterally, side-to-side, tall, narrow bodies, and paddle-shaped tails. The vertebrae and the ribs tend to be pachyostotic. That's why pachyrachis and pachyophis are called that. Nice. That thick bones, that dense, compact bones. And the thing that sets them all apart from all the other sea snakes we've talked about before, these were also mentioned back in episode three when we talked about snakes. This is the famous thing about these snakes. They had back legs. Yep. As you were saying it, I remember yep, seeing a picture. Eupodophis yep. <laughs> is named for having feet. True feet snake. Eupodophis, Hasiophis, and Pachyrachis, at least, all have skeletons that preserve the hind limbs. The others, uh, the other species in this group, are inferred to be close relatives. As far as I know, we don't have fossils that show whether they had back legs or not, but it's generally, it's particularly likely that they did if they are in fact closely related to these other snakes. In all of these groups, they it's just the back legs and they tend to be relatively short. These are not, these, these are almost certainly ancestral. Mm-hmm. These, they had snakes evolved from ancestors with four limbs. We know that snakes lost their front legs through evolution before they lost the back legs. Boas and pythons today still have little vestiges of those hind legs around their cloacal region. This appears to be an early branch of the snake family tree that retained those back legs. What they were doing with those tiny back legs, we don't know for sure. It's just itty bitty bitty 50% of a doggy paddle. Yeah, just a little (laughs) scratch. Were you using them to help with reproduction in some way? Were you scratching at each other the way that boas and pythons do? Uh, You probably weren't going up onto land very Mm -hmm. much with them. I imagine that when they swam, they would, I I assume it would have been a lot like what crocs do with their legs when they swim. Just tuck them in. Just kind of tuck them in and get them out of the way. But I I did have the thought of, like, had this group persisted, would you have started developing those for aquatic mobility? Like, would those have become, like, fish flippers to steer? Which would be weird, because most groups that do that are predominantly using the front limbs as flippers. But your ancestors had already lost those by the time you went to the water. Would you have evolved an extremely short body and a long, long tail to to get the legs up closer to the front? That's exactly what I was wondering, (laughs) is if if this group had persisted, would we have eventually ended up with, like, a, a lot... Like, when you think of moray eels, they have no front uh fins mm-hmm. but other there are eels that do have uh, a little uh, front flippers and would you end up with a eel shaped snake with paddles up front but that was the pelvis that had 
shifted forward yeah over time Whoa. or would, would you just have lost them yes would you like, like whales, whales. Yep. absolutely so this is so the modern snakes today are you know are elapid sea snakes we've got your paleophyids these are often called the limbed sea snakes makes sense this is a group of cretaceous a radiation of cretaceous sea snakes also while i was reading about them i found at least one study that described that some of these cretaceous sea snakes had noticeably narrow heads. Ha <laughs> ha! Were you doing the same? Th- were you going into cracks and crevices and burrows to get your food? <laughs> and uh, given the number of times it seems to have evolved in modern snakes and how good a strategy that I it seems like it would be, oh, almost for sure you oh, got to yeah. imagine some of them were doing that. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Also, at least one specimen of one of these, of Pachyrhachis specifically, has been found with bits of fish in the gut. Eee. So... We can tell it's not surprising to know they were eating aquatic food. That's why snakes go into the sea. Yes. It seems to be. So we've got this Cretaceous. So at least three times that we know of, we have modern diversity of sea snakes. We had a bunch in the Eocene. We had a bunch in the Cretaceous. What's really funny about these is because they they move around and live around in shallow oceans, we get nice skeletons of them every now and then yep they've now moved into a habitat that fossilizes much better yeah that's a great place to fall down and and become buried among a coral reef or something so these were sea snakes in the cretaceous that were living and moving around the tethys with ichthyosaurs Mm -hmm. and plesiosaurs and things like that and marine crocs yeah and marine crocs absolutely And, and during the eocene you would have potentially had snakes moving around at the same time that we had marine crocs Mm mm-hmm these are groups that I don't see discussed popularly nearly as often as a lot of other marine groups. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's because we still have them today, so it's not as novel. But mm-hmm. the fact that we've had multiple distinct radiations, uh, that's one of the parts that, that stands out to me. Very much like the Crocs, where yeah. there's a bunch of successful marine groups that don't actually seem to be super connected to each other in their invasion of, of salt water. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. These are cool to me because they're spread out so far. Like, we have the modern one, and then one on either sides, potent, you know, potentially either sides, maybe a little overlap, of the in Cretaceous. Like, that's a very cool breakup. And it's, it, it's for such a odd specialization for snakes today the fact that it's happened multiple times really speaks to that there's there's a winning strategy there and if we go back in time a bit further and we get a little bit speculative there is the very famous question yes of how snakes got started this is another thing we discussed a bunch in episode three we don't have a good fossil record of the earliest snakes we know they evolved among lizards we know that they started out with legs and very much like long-bodied and eventually legless lizards today but there are competing hypotheses for what caused snakes what was the selective pressure for snakes to become snake-shaped before they diversified and took over the world as we know them yes there have been hypotheses that they just started on land just nothing special that they were burrowers or that they were marine Mm -hmm. that the ancestors of snakes might have been marine 
This has been really difficult. The reason that there's a debate is because the fossil record is pretty scarce and it's difficult to, the phylogeny, what the relationships of snakes to other groups of lizards is very difficult to figure out. Yes. It's very hard to nail down. It's gone back and forth quite a bit. As as we often mention, extremely specialized body plans make it hard to compare to the more typical body plan because you're now so different. A lot of recent research, especially genetic research, also some fossil studies, seems to favor a burrowing or at least terrestrial ancestry and kind of moving away from the idea of a marine ancestry. Which is what we see with a lot of the skinny lizards today, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. a lot of narrow, limbless, you know, long, limbless lizards today tend to be burrowers mm-hmm. or they're in the leaf litter and stuff like that. The idea of a marine origin for snakes classically came from a couple of different major bits of evidence. One, that for a long time it's been suspected that snakes are closely related to ancient marine lizards. Yes. To mosasaurs and dolichosaurs, these groups of true lizards that were living in ocean or semi-marine habitats. Also, some of the earliest snakes that we have are those Cretaceous marine-limbed snakes, which are an early branch of snakes. They still have their limbs. So those evidences have been a lot of what researchers in the past have pointed at and gone, well, yeah, maybe the earliest snakes were kind of like mosasaurs or kind of like dolichosaurs. And that's where that long, sinuous body first evolved before they moved into being snakes as we know them now. Yep, yep. But like I said, there's a lot of back and forth on this. There's a lot of evidence that suggests not marine. There has been a lot of debate as to whether or not snakes actually are very closely related to those marine lizards. This has been difficult to nail down. There have been a bunch of genetic studies that have found evidence of deep genetic changes in snakes that seem to line up with a burrowing ancestry or something like that. Some studies have found that those Cretaceous marine snakes might be later developments in the snake family tree than we first thought. They may not be some of the very earliest branches of snakes. Yeah. They might be a little closer to modern snakes than we thought, so they may not be representative of the ancestry of snakes. So whether or not exactly how snakes got their start is still a big debate, but I did want to mention that here because it has at least for a long time been one of the running big hypotheses that snakes could have gotten their start as aquatic or semi-marine. If that were the case, it would mean that there have always been marine snakes. Yep. (laughs) That is just a thing that snakes always do. Which makes them oddly similar to monotremes. Right. (laughs) With with the question of, have you been swimming since the beginning? Have you just been doing this the whole time? (laughs) Based on more recent and current research, it seems like it's more likely probably that snakes didn't get started in the ocean, which arguably makes it even more impressive mm-hmm. that they got into the sea so early. A hundred million years ago, they were already evolving into marine adapted forms and have just kept doing it yes. through time to today. It is really impressive and a perfect indication that, as you pointed out, of how versatile this seemingly simple body plan actually is. It also is just waking up every bit of speculative energy. Like the fact that we have multiple transitions, the fact that they're all a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know, we have big members in one group, we have legged members. And then today's that are also different parts of the world, different areas. Modern is Indian and Pacific. 
the Eocene was around the Atlantic, and the Cretaceous was around the Tethys. Yes. And then, you know, it brings up other questions of, did you all also have the reduced belly scales? You know, mm-hmm. were your scales similar? I then, my brain tangented it off to the question of, if if we had a situation where marine snakes had to reinvade the land because of some extinction event, would they readapt like the normal snake belly scales or would they adapt new terrestrial mm-hmm. adaptations? Would it, would they have to do their own thing because they've now gotten so good at being in the ocean? Yeah. They have to burrow first. Yeah, yeah. They would you be able straight to into the, the, the soil reverse back to being a normal <laughs> snake or would you have to become a new type of terrestrial snake? Well, if it's if it is indeed the case that a marine or semi-marine lineage gave rise mm. to that Australian group of snakes. Well, that Australian group of snakes are pretty standard land yes. snakes, so maybe they can just kind of go back and forth. Yeah. There is an extremely long and surprisingly consistent history of snakes moving into the sea. Snakes today are among the best, not just reptiles, among the most specialized secondarily aquatic vertebrates. Yep. Even most mammals don't get as good at it as modern sea snakes have done it. Yes. And they've been there, uh, they, they've done this several times, which is super, super cool. Well, a, a land animal returning to the sea and then getting to the point where you're now also giving birth at sea mm-hmm. is, that's there's not a lot of examples we have of that today, for sure, but even just going back through history, that there are notable groups, but like seals give birth on land. Yeah, they go back up onto land for a bunch of stuff. And so you have a bunch of examples where you you are, even though you are so good, you're you're basically a, right, like a, a torpedo dog. A, a, a sea turtle. You're, yes. ba- you're basically a fish. Yes. Except. But. You still have to come out of the water every now and then. The fact that sea snakes, that, that, that a snake was able to get to the point of, I'm just going to hang out in the middle of the ocean. I'll be drink rainwater. <laughs> I'm good. That's that's insane. Yeah. Very cool group of animals. Very cool trend throughout the history of this group. I have, of course, been absolutely delighted to get to dive in to the topic of sea snakes. Just such a cool trend. It's super fun. This was a really fun pair of episodes to do Marine Crocs last episode and sea snakes this episode. Because it just so happens that our groups of animals that we have chosen are really good at moving into the sea. And this also, there's fuel on the fire for all those people out there who are like, do turtles! Right? Yeah, there is. (laughs) Turtles have also been really good at this. That I now had the question of how many times and how often were marine crocs or marine snakes eating each other. Mm -hmm. Because you had some big snakes that... Like oh, sure. Anacondas can take down a caiman, and crocs are, are big fans of eating snakes. Mm-hmm. How I'm, often? I'm sure saltwater crocs grab sea snakes oh, every yeah. now and then. Oh, Today, yeah. they, they must. Yes, no, there, there's no way they, they wouldn't if they if one came close by. So, like, yeah. sea snakes, incidentally, uh, some sea snakes are quite common in the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, Which yeah. is super cool. That makes sense. That makes tons of sense. So, a big thing. We hope everybody has enjoyed this discussion of sea snakes. Before we wrap up our episode and our main discussion and all of our fun tangents about snakes, there is one thing left to do, and that is our patron question. Every episode, we pick a question submitted to us by our patrons at a certain level. Thank you for submitting them, patrons, and we answer them here on the podcast. Will, what do we got? We have a question asked by two people, Kit Kat and Jackie, who both asked, 
if we can explain the suffixes oids, ids, forms, morphs, etc. For example, tyrannosauridae, crocodiliforms, graphoids, etc. Is there a rhyme or reason to these suffixes? That is a great question. And yeah, it is a thing that we talk about a whole bunch where you'll hear us use ide, oide, and so on. There is rhyme or reason here. Mostly, this is taxonomy. Yes. So, a family, in sort of your Linnaean taxonomy, families tend to end in ide. Mm-hmm. Tyrannosauridae, this episode that we talked about, elapidae. Subfamilies traditionally end in ine. Tyrannosaurinae, this group of snakes is in hydrophianae. Superfamilies, so one level above the family level, are often labeled with oidea, tyrannosauroidea. Uh, elapids are in elapoidea. Mm-hmm. Crocodilia. Yeah. Is, Cro- uh, that's got... actually an official grouping name. And you've got crocodilidae. Mm-hmm. You've got crocodiloids. And then bigger groups are often given the suffix of forms and morphs. So dinosauromorpha, crocodiliforms. Those tend to be... We, we, we run out of the Linnaean taxonomy because Linnaeus only gave us seven categories yes. and we need a whole lot more of those. But crocodile, the whole crocodilian family, and a few cousins outside of it are crocodiliforms. The dinosaur lineage and a few cousins outside of it are dinosauromorphs. This usually is referring to specific levels of the family tree. Yes. The thing that can often make it confusing and tricky is that they aren't equivalent to one another so and a ide in one group in one evolutionary lineage might be much more diverse than an ide in another group we mentioned uh, in this episode acrocordidae the file snakes are three species yes elapidae the cobras coral snakes mambas and all them are all over the world and there's tons and tons of them when we talk about these sort of in colloquial talk, we will also shorten them. Mm-hmm. So we will say elapids or tyrannosauroids or crocodiliforms. And we're kind of right. We turn oidea into oids and we turn ide into ids. We also get really lazy about it. And like in our tyrannosaurs episode, we will use the term tyrannosaur to refer either to tyrannosauroids, tyrannosaurids, tyrannosaurines, or Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes. <laughs> Same thing with Crocs. That's why like, I went through that step-by-step breakdown of the Croc taxonomy, because we call all of those Crocs, but while you're talking about the fossil record and the relationships, you have to start actually specifying which level yes. you're talking about. Because if we look at the whole, we've got Crocodilus, mm-hmm. which is a genus yep. of animals that are typically called crocodiles, in a family Crocodilidae, in a big group Crocodilia that are part of the crocodiliforms, that are part of the crocodilomorphs, and we just say crocs to make it easy. It's very much like the square rectangle situation of, like, (laughs) alligators are crocs, but not all crocs are alligators. Like, alligators are in crocodilia. They they are a crocodilian, but they are a specific group that aren't crocodiles. (laughs) They are in the family Alligatoridae. Yes. uh, Whereas something like Dinosuchus is an Alligatoroidea, which is a slightly bigger... Yeah, so, alligatoroidea includes the caimans as well as alligators, yes. so you, that you can see how you keep nesting doll. Yes. Uh, but another part of the confusion is that we often name those bigger groups after who we first... You know, alligator goes farther up the tree, 
because we named it after alligators first. Right. And, there's not a caimanoidea. Yeah. They're in alligatoroidea. And then we realized, well, you and caimans are closely related, but you're going to be named for alligators. Aren't there only two of those today? Yeah. They got the name. They but got here first. We named it after them. And you see that with groups all throughout taxonomy where it's named for this group because that's the one that sparked the yes. taxonomy. So our eens and ids and oids and forms and morphs, mostly that is those suffixes are denoting levels of the family tree. I should note here, very importantly, those suffixes are mainly for animals. Yes. Plants <laughs> have a different system. They've got aces and ales, and I think they also have oids. I don't know the plant system. I like fungi and bacteria. There are different suffixes that will go in there. So when you listen to when Allie's on the podcast and suddenly all the suffixes are different because plant taxonomy uses different terms than animal taxonomy yep. because botanists and zoologists don't get along. Yeah. The other thing that I, is really important to note here is that those suffixes are often used for taxonomy, but they are also not uncommonly used just for descriptions of anatomy and stuff. Yes. So like... In the last episode, uh, Will, you used the term lingerostrine, mm -hmm. and that een is very much the same een that goes at the end of subfamily names. In the Sicilians episode, we talked about how they are vermiform, yep. worm-shaped, and indeed that description of anatomy is why sometimes like dinosauromorph and crocodiliform are called that. Yes. Because dinosaur morph literally means the shape of a dinosaur. Yep. You're not dinosaurs, but you are, or you're not necessarily dinosaurs, but you are close and therefore similar. So those suffixes, morph and forms and id or in, will also sometimes be used for anatomy terms. Well, and I know there are some examples like Rostrine. Every now and then while you're going through the croc side of Wikipedia, you will come up, you know, Whenever you look at a group of animals on Wikipedia, it will give you their taxonomic breakdown yes. off to the side on the, the right side of the page to tell you what order, family, genus, what they are in. Every now and then you will see a grouping, a clade for Londrostrine pop up there. Right. Because that was suggested at times to be an official grouping. Nowadays we don't typically do that, but we still use the descriptor as to what that grouping was describing. And sometimes a group will then be named after mm. a descriptor. So the suffixes are mostly taxonomy. Sometimes, but when we use them, they're also an anatomy thing. So to answer the question, is there a rhyme and reason to it? Yes, yes. there is a rhyme and reason. Is it confusing and arbitrary <laughs> and inconsistent? Absolutely it yeah. is. Do you need to know what all the suffixes mean to be a successful paleontologist? Nope. Nope. That's all written down for you somewhere. I miss the oid instead of ide all the time mm -hmm. where I will be reading it and go, oh, there was an, because all it's just adding an O. There's just an extra O yep. in there. There's an O. And if I. And the E and the A are technically switched. Yes, they around. are. Yep. And neither of those are helpful to my dyslexia. So if I miss the <laughs> O and I'm never paying attention to whether the E or A. All the way at the end of the word. <laughs> Why are we flipping those two letters if they're making the same well, sound? It also doesn't help. And this happens with snakes a bunch. That names keep shifting between the family and subfamily level. Yes. So like I mentioned homolopsids in this episode. The group that includes the tentacle snakes and the, the crab eating snakes. 
depending on what paper you're reading, it will either be homolopsidae or homolopsinae. Yeah. And every time I say one of them, I know that somewhere out there, there's a snake researcher who disagrees. Yes. He's like, you said the wrong one. So, like I said, it can be confusing. It can be arbitrary. But hopefully that is a, a... reasonable explanation of where those suffixes are actually coming from. Well, and this is one of those tools that's useful within what you're studying. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're studying crocs, it is really important to make sure that you have your morphs, forms, ides, oides, and ines all organized. The specific layout won't apply to any other group because Mm -hmm. you might not have as many ines in another group or that group might not be as important. But if you're studying this, you need to have it straight. For that group that you're studying, you need to make sure you have it right. And then you'll have to kind of reformat if you go to another group. Yes. Thank you for asking that question. We could tell that this was something that was wearing on people's minds because both Kit Kat and Jackie asked it. Thank you for submitting the question. Thank you for your support as patrons. Mm -hmm. Thanks to all of our patrons. Thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks to all of our topic requesters. Thanks to everyone for sticking with us through this fascinating discussion about sea snakes and the their various cousins and imitators. Yeah. As always, if you have questions, if you have requests, if you have comments, there's all sorts of ways to find us on social media, on our Discord. Hop in the episode description and find those links. Don't forget, it is July, and July is Snake Month. Yeah, we're kicking it off with this episode. We've got a special channel on the Discord for snake stuff. We've got a bonus episode, snake uh, talking about snakes with me, later this month. And on Patreon, our Snakes and Crocs tier is up just for this month. If you join at this tier, not only do you get goodies, but... The subscriptions that we get at this tier during this month will contribute to charitable donations we will be making towards snake and croc conservation and research. So please consider uh, joining and supporting us and our reptile friends at the same time. Yeah, and if you're still hungry for serpentine sea creatures, uh, go listen to the Sea Serpent Spooky episode. Oh yeah, uh, we did do that a few like, years ago. I bet now, upon re-listening after discussing all the sea serpents, all the actual sea snakes and sea serpents. Uh, I bet there's a bunch of ideas that we missed. Yep. We'll uh, have to, we'll have to revisit it someday. Yeah. They all have the wrong belly scales. So <laughs> we, we made them wrong. <laughs> we release episodes every fortnight. Uh, stay tuned. There will be a whole other episode. It won't be about snakes, uh, sadly, but I'll figure out a way to work snakes in there. <laughs> I like a sea snake poking its head into the cracks and crevices where it doesn't belong. I will find a way to intrude snake discussion in whatever you're going to talk about next episode. I was going to say... It's, oh, I'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, no. <laughs> I know what the next about. one is. But I actually, I can already think of how I, you can... Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. I will get there. There's synonyms that you can use. <laughs> Listeners, please uh, hop on our social media, hop in the Discord, uh, get in our blog, wherever you want, uh, and share your snake thoughts. Join the discussion celebrating snakes this month before it's gone. And with that, uh, let's wrap it up. That has been uh, Marine Crocs, Sea Snakes. It's been it's been a couple of really cool episodes. Yeah, these are really awesome groups. <laughs> Sign-off phrase. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. 
Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.